His eye is on the sparrow. Welcome as we take another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, who called us to live to a higher standard each day and not be satisfied with throwing a little religion into life as a shallow substitute for giving God our best. Our series will continue in the coming weeks as we hear from family, friends, and others, all influenced by Elizabeth's life and her message. Hey, thanks for coming along today. Well, we begin a new series today. It's called His Eye is on the Sparrow. Part 1, What the Indians Taught Me, and Get Rid of Complaining. Joining us today, Valerie Shepard, Elizabeth and Jim's daughter, will talk about the time when she and her mother went back to a house that Jim Elliott had built. And Amy Van Dyke of the Museum of the Bible joins us again to talk about the Waldani language and how it was to try to translate that. First, though, let's begin with our series, His Eye is on the Sparrow. Hey, did Elizabeth try to teach the Indians English? And did she learn more than she taught? How about the word endurance? How is that important? You are loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms. My topic for this evening is what the Indians taught me. I've been asked sometimes, what did you learn from the Indians? Or what did you teach the Indians? And some people have even asked me, did I teach very many of them to speak English? Well, of course, I never made the slightest attempt to teach any Indian to speak English. It wouldn't do him any good in a place called Ecuador. But I did make some attempt to teach them some things, of course, to teach them the Bible, the gospel, and I taught people to read and taught a few girls to sew and some things like that. But the Indians taught me so much more than what I taught them. And I feel very greatly blessed and indebted to those Indians for the lessons that they taught me. And you'll see that these things had a very different meaning in their context, but they are principles which are applicable in our lives, I believe. The first was endurance. Endurance, I think, was one of the first things that caught my attention about jungle Indians. And I read a very interesting book by an Italian woman who had gone into Venezuela and was working with a group of Italian, I believe, photographers and people who were prospecting for gold and oil and I don't know what all. And on one occasion, she was up on a rock looking down on the river where the Indians, who were their guides, and the Italian men were desperately struggling with a very, very heavy dugout canoe. And as she was observing the process of portaging this canoe over some rapids, she was fascinated to note how differently the Italians, and I believe there were some Americans in with the group as well, the difference between the foreigners and the Indians in their management of this hard task. The so-called civilized people, the Italians and the Americans, were grunting and sweating and complaining and swearing. And the Indians were just utterly happy and just doing the job without the slightest problem. It wasn't any big deal to them. 
And so she began to study what it is through several years of living with the Indian tribes in Venezuela. And this, of course, fascinated me because I had lived with three different tribes in Ecuador over a period of 11 years and had noticed exactly the same thing, that Americans make a federal case out of everything. Everything's got to be fun and it's got to be comfortable. And if it is neither one, then we sweat and we strain and we stew and we wipe our brows and we say, whew. And you know, I never heard an Indian say, whew, in my whole life. I mean, there isn't any Indian word for that. Endurance is a word that is seldom preached on today, at least in my experience. And I made quite a long list of the word as it occurs in various translations. I won't read you the whole list, but the Bible does talk a lot about endurance. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 7, if we ourselves have been comforted, we know how to encourage you to endure. 2 Corinthians 6, genuine ministers of God, whatever we may have to go through, patient endurance of troubles or even disasters, being flogged, and he goes on to list some other problems. 1 Thessalonians 1, the hope that you have in our Lord Jesus Christ means sheer, dogged endurance. Well, that's a sampler. I have actually two pages of references where the word endurance occurs. It doesn't always occur in the King James Version. Other words are used. But the principle is still there. Many's the time I've been on a trail with Indians over a period of hours and sometimes days. And one, on one occasion, I was with two women. One had a baby on her back. No, she had a baby in a sling on her side, and she had a heavy basket of food on her back, and she had a machete in her hand. And the other woman was carrying, I think, an even heavier basket on her back, also had a machete in her hand. And the third person of the party happened to be a man, and he was carrying his blowgun, period. Well, these were Alka Indians, and their view was that women are much stronger than men when it comes to bearing, bearing burdens. And the men were very frank in admitting they couldn't carry the loads that the women carried. And I think it was probably true, because they really hadn't practiced it very much. <laughs> uh, when the men went hunting, if they took along their blowguns, which was what they t usually took, they took just the blowgun, and then they had a little quiver hanging on their back with the poison-tipped darts in the quiver. And if they got birds and monkeys, they would carry them home. But if they got a bigger animal, and they had to have a spear with them to get a bigger animal, they would leave the animal and come back home as fast as they could come, and that might have meant three or four hours through the jungle, and they would send their wives out to find that animal. Now, how in the world they ever found them, I never could understand. And of course, the idea was for them to run so that they got there before the jaguars ate the, the animal, whatever it was. But then they had to carry the meat back. And I've seen these women come back with the wild pig or the taper. If it was a taper, then it had to be cut up in pieces that would be carried by four or five women. But I've seen them come back over the trail, literally mud from head to toe, this band right across their forehead, which supported the weight of the basket on the back. And they had, my estimate was, they were carrying as much as 50 to 70 pounds. 
And I know that when I carried 15 pounds on my back for a whole day, that was a very heavy load. And you know, those women would just quietly stoop down, slip this tump line from their forehead with their heads back so that they could release the basket on their back. And immediately they would set to work stirring up the fire and cooking the meat. Not a word about, what a trip, what a day. You know, look at you guys sitting here waiting for us. <laughs> nary a word like that, nary a word of complaint. Sheer, dogged endurance. And on this particular day that I was with the three on the trail, we had walked maybe three hours or so, and then it was time to take what they called a, a break, which consisted of drinking a little chicha. Chicha is a milky, rather, sl rather slightly sour, stringy, lukewarm, lumpy drink, <laughs> which is made in the following fashion. They steam manioc, which is a starchy tuber, shaped about like a carrot, but about that long, brown skin on the outside, white on the inside. It's, it's cultivated by the women, and it's very good. It is a staple food of all Amazon Indians. And they would steam this, then they would put it out onto, into a huge wooden tray on the ground, and the women would sit around this tray and pound it with a mortar, with a pestle rather, until it was pretty much like mashed potatoes, except that it was lumpy and stringy. It was impossible to get it very smooth. Then they would spend a couple of hours chewing and spitting it back into the tray. And when they had chewed and spat perhaps a third of what was in there, then they would squish it around with their hands and pick up maybe three pounds and wrap it in banana leaves and tie it up with a vine. And then it would be set aside for about three days and it would be slightly fermented. I presume it was sort of a mild form of beer. But that's what chicha was. And so it was time to take a chicha break. And as we sat down beside the trail. The two women took these baskets off their backs, and the man with his blowgun sat down waiting to be served his chicha. And so I just said to him, or I said to Mankamo, the woman, I said, Mankamo, why don't you let Monga carry the, ba the basket now? And she looked at Monga and she said, Monga, carry the basket? He's a man. He couldn't carry that. And he agreed heartily. Well, it's different cultures, different ideas. Alfred the Great is quoted as having said, if thou hast a fearful thought, share it not with a weakling, whisper it to thy saddle bow, and ride forth singing. I love that. And Amy Carmichael loved it, and that's where I got it. I found it in one of her books. There's so many things in life that call for simple endurance, not complaining, not self-pity, but just endurance. And if any of you, those of you that have read Amy Carmichael's biography called A Chance to Die, she tells very early in the book how on one occasion she had a very bad pain when she was a little child and her mother gave her the standard pink powder that they used for remedies. And after an hour or so, she came back to her mother and she said, but, but mother, the pain is still there. And her mother said, well, I'm sorry, dear. And she said, but mother, it is a very bad pain. It is a terrible pain. And her mother said, I'm afraid you must bear it 
patiently. Teaching a very small child to endure, and I'm sure my daughter must have quoted that because I was at dinner table one time with the grandchildren, and the, the child who was in the high chair was less than two years old, and in the middle of the meal, I noticed that she had a Band-Aid on her leg or something, but in the middle of the meal, she spoke up and said, Mama, am I bearing this patiently? <laughs> so I knew she didn't make that up. She, it must have come. How often our immediate reaction to any kind of difficulty is to call up somebody and pour out our troubles to them. Get on the phone, feel sorry for yourself, and tell them how awful everything is. Well, how about whispering it to your saddle bow and ride forth singing instead of sharing it with a weakling who very likely has enough troubles of her own. His Eyes on the Sparrow, Part 1, and that was What the Indians Taught Me. Later on in Part 2, we'll hear about getting rid of complaining. Right now, though, let's hear from Valerie Elliott Shepard, Elizabeth and Jim's daughter, as she talks about a time when she and her mother went back to a house that Jim Elliott had built. 1996, my mother and her husband invited my husband and me to go to Ecuador and meet in Quito. We were actually celebrating the 40th anniversary of the death of, I don't know if you say celebrating, but it was a memorial service at the HCJB radio station. And we met Steve Saint there, who is Marge Saint's son, Nate Saint's son. And our son Walter was actually living with my uncle Bert, who is my father's older brother, who's now in heaven also. And Uncle Bert had been a missionary in, in Peru for many years at that time. And by the time he died, I believe it had been 63 years of work in Peru. And uh, so our son, Walter, came to see us when he was in Peru. It was an unbelievable way that God allowed him to get on a bus for 36 hours, cross the border between Peru and Ecuador, which is always chancy. You never know what's going to happen at the borders. Um, he got to meet us right at the airport in Quito, and he got to be with us as we went to visit the Quichuas, as well as going to visit the Waurani. It was an, a wonderful trip. We were visiting the Quichua Indians in the house that my dad built. Some Quichuas had decided it had been empty all these years. They might as well move in. And it unfortunately had broken up any harmony that was in the tribe of Quichuas in that little village called Shandia. Um, one family felt it was their right to move into the house. The other family said, well, we helped build it. We helped Mr. Jim Jaime Elliott build it too, so we should be able to move in. So there was a huge rift between those two families. And so when we got to Shandia, it was very sad to see that the Quichuas were, it was all about who was living in my father's house. And so we, are, we go up to the house and of course everything's overgrown, nothing looks quite the same, the house a little dilapidated, but we sit down to sit with the Quichuas and of course my mother could still speak Quichua and they brought us um, boiled eggs and chicha, that manioc drink that I mentioned. And so my mother, Lars, my husband, my son, Walter, our oldest, we're all sitting there eating when a blonde leather clad young man walks through the jungle to the house and my mother 
said to him in Spanish, thinking he might be Spanish, he actually asked first, he said, is this the house of Jim Elliot? And he asked that in Spanish and my mother answered him in Spanish. And he was just overcome because my mother said, and I happen to be Jim Elliot's wife and this is her, our daughter and this is her husband and this is their son. And uh, he just said, well, I read through Gates of Splendor while I was in Germany and I decided to go visit Ecuador and thought I might start learning Spanish and do some mission work in, in Ecuador. And I thought I'd come see Jim Elliott's house. And it just happened that we were there on that very day. <laughs> so my mother was thrilled that somebody was coming to see it. Um, and we just had a nice visit, of course, because she could still speak Quechua. She explained that to the Quechua Indians and she could still speak Spanish. So that was a huge gift from the Lord that day. Valerie Shepard. Thank you, Valerie. Later on, we'll hear from Amy Van Dyke of the Museum of the Bible as she talks about the Waldani language of the Alka people. Right now, part two of His Eye is on the Sparrow. It's one of those things that's hard to stay away from sometimes, complaining. Is it good to be uneasily silent, to stop whimpering? This is called Get Rid of Complaining. And in this wonderful little book, Daily Strength from Daily, for Daily Needs, which I read every day, I find this. Truly, this is a grief, and I must bear it. And that's from Jeremiah 10:19. Hold in thy murmurs, heaven arraigning. The patient see God's loving face, who bear their burdens uncomplaining. Tis they that win the Father's grace. And then a quotation from J.P. Greaves on the same page, do not run to this and that for comfort when you are in trouble, but bear it. Be uncomfortably quiet. Be uneasily silent. Be patiently unhappy. I think we need exercises like that. I think it is high time we stopped whimpering and sniveling over our troubles. And be uncomfortably quiet, be uneasily silent, be patiently unhappy, but keep it to yourself. Surely I have thought I do not want to have a grief which would not be a grief. I feel that I shall be able to take up my cross in a religious spirit soon, and then it will be all right. My daughter had been married just a year or two when her husband said something to me which amazed me. He pointed to his wife across the room and he said, that woman never complains. And my heart swelled with pride, thinking what a wonderful job I had done as her mother. <laughs> and the Lord smote me then instantly to heart, reminding me that she didn't learn that from me because I am a complainer. I was a born complainer. And I hope God helping me that I'm not doing as much of it as I used to. But I remembered that she grew up with Indians for the first eight years of her life, which certainly were the, by far the most crucial years of her life. And she just learned that you don't complain. Children were always stepping on thorns, not just children. We all had to go barefoot all the time because you can't wear shoes where it's mud up to your knees. And we stepped on thorns and we got stung on the foot by caterpillars and we stepped on a hot coal once in a while in the house. And there were all sorts of things. We had mist and mud and mold and mildew and mosquitoes and vampire bats and piranhas, you know, those 
fierce fish in the rivers that are supposed to be able to clean a man's skeleton right down to nothing in about 10 minutes. Um, electric eels, alligators were all in the river that we swam in. But these little troubles, such as stepping on thorns or hot coals, nobody made a big fuss about. And you know why your children complain so much? They learned that. Think about it. It is learned behavior. And endurance is learned behavior. My husband and, and my daughter and her husband and my oldest grandson were visiting the Alcas on the Kodadai River, not very far from where five men had been killed in 1956. Our host and hostess were Steve Saint, son of Nate Saint, the pilot, who had also been killed. Steve and his wife, Jenny, have established a little sort of a village on the Kodadai River. And during our two days there, we saw the Indians lowering a dugout canoe from what I would guess was about maybe a 25 or 30 foot cliff down into the river. A very touchy job. It's a very, very heavy thing. And after they had accomplished that part of it, then here came an Indian down this absolutely oil slick steep descent of mud from the top down to the river, carrying this huge motor, outboard motor, on his shoulder. I couldn't even imagine how he would do it. No complaints, no anybody patting him on the back for a great job done. I mean, we stood there just agog to think that anybody could walk down that steep incline at all without falling, let alone walking down with a, with a motor on his back. Now, I didn't learn the lessons there as well as I should have, and for that, I'm ashamed. But over the years since then, God has been teaching me things, and I pass on to you the suggestion that maybe we need to bear patiently and endure. The world would be a brighter place if there wasn't so much complaining and so much self-pity. A lesson that Amy Carmichael taught me through one of her poems in her beautiful little poetry book, Toward Jerusalem. In acceptance lieth peace. And there are a good many things in life that we cannot change. There's some things we can change which we ought to change. There's some things which we can change which we ought not to try to change. For example, ladies, our husbands. We would, most of us can probably think of one or two tiny suggestions that we might like to make <laughs> to our husbands. Slight improvements that would change our lives. But that's one of those things that we might be able to change a little bit, but we ought not to because it is not our business. But just think of the multitude of things in our, in our lives which cannot be changed. You cannot change the fact that your child has become a wayward child and you can't do anything with him and he's gone off and you don't know where he is. I couldn't change the fact that I had become a widow and that I was now running a jungle station by myself. We cannot change the weather. I remember years ago when we used to listen to the radio as a very great treat. I remember when we got our very first radio and we didn't listen to it very often but my father would give us permission once in a while and I remember hearing a black choir and they used to sing a song 
about some folks have the sunshine while the others have the rain, but God don't change the weather just cause the folks complain. <laughs> and I have never forgotten that. Acceptance, as Samuel Rutherford put it, is framing our hearts to the burden. Framing our hearts to the burden. We are the ones to make the adjustments when something happens that cannot be changed, that we don't like. And with the Indians, there was such acceptance of the terrible weather that we had that there was no vocabulary. I never found any vocabulary for complaining about the weather in any of the Indian languages that I had to learn. They never made any comments about it. It could be pouring rain, but what's the difference? And while we were visiting Steve, there were some torrential rains. And I stood there in his fairly comfortable house. It's a board house with a tarp for a roof. And I looked down, and here's a little hut very close to his house where there were five or six Indian women, a couple of them very old, decrepit Indian women. And they just wandered out of the house into the pouring rain. I mean, it was coming down in sheets. No attention to it whatsoever, just this is the way life is, acceptance, framing one's heart to the burden. Perhaps you're in a work situation that you would love to get out of or you would love to change. Maybe you have an, a very unreasonable boss. Maybe you have been treated unjustly by somebody, one of your neighbors, one of your relatives. Can you change the fact that it happened? No. Is it something that you can and ought to do something about? Perhaps. But on the other hand, perhaps not. And that's our opportunity to frame our hearts to the burden. Here's a little quotation from a man named Roy Lesson. I've come across his name several times. I don't know anything about him. I gather he's a contemporary. This is what he says, a woman once fretted over the usefulness of her life. She feared she was wasting her potential being a devoted wife and mother. She wondered if the time and energy she invested in her husband and children would make a difference. At times she got discouraged because so much of what she did seemed to go unnoticed and unappreciated. Is it worth it, she often wondered. Is there something better that I could be doing with my time? It was during one of these moments of questioning that she heard the still, small voice of her Heavenly Father speak to her heart. You are a wife and mother because that is what I have called you to do. Much of what you do is, bidden, is hidden from the public eye, but I notice. Most of what you give is done without remuneration, but I am your reward. Your husband cannot be the man I have called him to be without your support. Your influence upon him is greater than you think and more powerful than you will ever know. I bless him through your service and honor him through your love. Your children are precious to me, even more precious than they are to you. I have entrusted them to your care, 
to raise for me. What you invest in them is an offering to me. You may never be in the public spotlight, but your obedience shines as a bright light before me. Continue on. Remember, you are my servant. Do all to please me. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, has a large plaque in her kitchen that says, divine service conducted here three times daily. <laughs> Women's work is not the kind of work that anybody is going to notice as long as you do it. Everybody is going to notice if you don't do it. <laughs> Acceptance of the place where God has put us. Psalm 16:5 says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup and have made my lot secure. You have assigned me my portion. Have you learned how to frame your heart to the burden, to adjust your thinking, and to say, yes, Lord, I receive this. I accept it, and I will receive it with both hands in your name and for your glory. It'll make a very big difference in your life. Part two in His Eye is on the Sparrow. Get rid of complaining. Well, before we go, let's hear from Amy Van Dyke of the Museum of the Bible, lead curator. She talks about the difficulty of the Waldani language. Because they were so isolated, the language was not like anything else that they were familiar with. And Dayume was instrumental in making this happen because Dayume was a member of the tribe as a child and then had left and was raised by others. So she knew both languages. So she was instrumental in that. But even the way that the language is spoken, Elizabeth mentions that in some of her talks, that it's almost, it has some guttural sounds in the back of the throat and you have to do weird things to your tongue and stuff like that. And it, she just talks about how hard it was to determine what is what and write it down and create that language. From the Museum of the Bible, that was Amy Van Dyke. Well, as our time together comes to an end, thanks for letting us come into your home. Maybe along with you as you are getting some exercise, maybe in the office. Uh, maybe that's where we found you. Uh, thanks for letting us join you. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, uh, let me invite you to visit elizabethelliot.org. More lectures, more devotionals, videos, Gateway to Joy programs, and more. elizabethelliot.org. A Noel C. writes, I had not heard of Elizabeth Elliot until a friend shared this podcast with me. I have listened to every episode and look forward to each Sunday and Wednesday when a new episode is released. When I listen, I glean valuable and applicable wisdom to apply to parenting, marriage, and my daily life as a Christian. Well, thank you for your encouragement. That review from a listener on Apple Podcasts. Well, until next time, may God remind you each and every day, you are loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>